0: Daily news and analysis, we keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Hello and welcome to World Today, I'm Ding in Beijing. Coming up, President Xi Jinping calls for a China-Vietnam community with a shared future. COP28 draft agreement drops the phase-out of fossil fuels. NVIDIA is in talks with the U.S. government about artificial intelligence chip sales to China. And the Parliament of Poland has elected a former EU leader Donald Tusk as the country's prime minister, setting the stage for a fall with the EU. To listen to this episode again or to catch upon our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Our top story. General Secretary Xi Jinping of the Communist Party of China Central Committee has held talks with Fu Trong, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam Central Committee in the city of Hanoi. Xi Jinping, who is also the Chinese president, arrived in Vietnam on Tuesday to begin his two-day state visit to this country. Earlier, he has published a signed article in the country's Nandan newspaper calling for establishing a China Vietnam community with a shared future. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, as a matter of fact, China and Vietnam have already enjoyed some 15 years of comprehensive strategic partnership between them. So with that in mind, why do you think President Xi Jinping now raises this idea regarding uh, China-Vietnam community with a shared future? What do you think this particular idea tells us about how China views its ties with Vietnam?
0: Well, I think the uh, China and the Vietnam relationship, it is true. I think it uh, already has been, a, a, I mean, a quite high, a high sort of a level, as you rightly said, uh, for the past 15 years, I mean, they, this year, we are celebrating the 50th, 15th anniversary of the establishment of a comprehensive strategic cooperation. This is already a very high uh, sort of a level. But, and the, uh, it's fair to say the past 15 years have seen, uh, witnessed the the relationship as registered, has made great progress in terms of political trust, uh, practical cooperation, people to people interaction, and also I think in terms of how to constructively manage uh, their differences. Having said that, I think as China and uh, Vietnam are planning the future, and the context where the, the region and the world as whole well undergoing dramatic unseen, I mean, changes, transformation, unseen century. And also, bilaterally, the relationship, I mean, in terms of the breast and the broth, has uh, also been reached a new high, new level, need a new formula, a, a new sort of a vision
3: to mm. guide
0: the relationship. So, the community of shared future is a new vision. It is also a kind of a blueprint for uh, a future, uh, setting the direction for the future development. And last but not least, I think if you look at China's relationship with other neighboring countries, particularly for ASEAN, I mean, on the mm. Indochina, with relationship with the Cambodia, with the Thailand, with the Laos and others, they all have elevated to that uh, mm. level. Uh, uh, poor, I mean, agreed to build a relationship with high a uh, 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 Community share always share the future. So it's only fair, only natural for the two countries uh to elevate, to raise the relation to a new level, new high that would better reflect the reality and the vision for uh for for the for the for the bilateral relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh one point in President Xi Jinping's signed article published over there. Uh, seemed to be pretty uh, interesting. He mentioned that Vietnamese fruits and vegetables are nowadays becoming the new favorites uh, for Chinese consumers. And the other way around, uh, raw materials and machinery equipment from China are nowadays helping boost the manufacturing sector in Vietnam as well. Actually, with regard to trade, there were cases in which some Vietnamese trading services companies have, on one hand, seen a significant slump in terms of exports to uh, to countries like the United States and Canada this year, but still, on the other hand, their overall exports revenue have increased about a whopping 20% this year thanks to these growing order or growing shipments uh, to China. So what do you think stories like this tell us about you know, how trade momentum between China and Vietnam is going on at a time when, frankly speaking, when global economic recovery is still very much lacking momentum after the end of the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: I think these stories at least tell a, a few things, Most, in, which is very important, first and foremost. I think the great potentiality and complementarity of the two countries in terms of economic and trade. Remember, as we're talking about the 15th anniversary of the diplomatic, I mean, the uh, comprehensive strategic cooperation relationship, back then, 15 years ago, trade was stood at something like 20 uh, 20- something billion US. Now we're talking about uh, 230 billion. So Ten times and more, and uh, secondly, I think uh, the uh, the uh, markets of uh, both of China to to Vienna and Vienna to China are very much important to each other because the 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 China as far as as we can see that its economy is uh, developing and it's now we are the uh, pursuing a kind of high quality. Uh, development more opening up, uh, big more uh, uh, import high quality product, and this is exactly where uh, 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 Vietnam can play a role in terms not only in terms of agriculture, products, fruits, these exotic foods, tropical foods, mm. durians are not very popular, but also in terms of high quality service and goods. Last but not least, I think. Uh, the very fact that China and uh, China has been the I think the largest trading partner of, of Vietnam for two twenty years consecutively, and Vietnam is the fourth largest trading comp- company uh, <laughs> partner the, uh, globally and mm. the largest trading partner for among ASEAN shows that the the I think the bright future for trade and and uh, trade trade relations. All in all, I think uh, Vietnam, for its own development, uh, uh, China plays now very much important role as the world economy is slowly. I mean, the recovery of the world economy, the economy growth, is mm-hmm. not as good as expected. So China plays a dominant role. China is very much important. Of course, Vietnam is also very much important yep. uh, to, to China, to Chinese uh,
1: investors. Mm. Of course, trade is one form of cooperation. But in the meantime, uh, President Xi Jinping's article is also calling for, say, making good use of the two sides' uh, complementary strength, let's put it in this way, to cement the foundation for their cooperative interaction. In this regard, I guess we can talk about the first city metro in Vietnam, this 13-kilometer-long you know, Cat Line Hadong Line. It covers uh, three districts in the city of Hanoi, and it, I guess, it, it is now providing a, a very attractive alternative to uh, motorcycles, motorbikes, and and I guess cars as well for local commuters in the city. Uh, this project was built by China, and now. Run and operated by uh, Vietnam. So, to what extent do you think a project like this would tell us about how China and Vietnam might be able to push forward cooperation in a pragmatic way?
0: Yeah, I think this is exactly the significance of practical cooperation between China and Vietnam can make a difference. I mean, the importance of that. And then first. And foremost, I I can demonstrate that a demonstration effect to the general public, to the average people. Remember, I think uh, uh, the uh, Vietnam, I mean, in, in Hanoi and other cities, there are also projects or attempted, I mean, in terms of improving the infrastructure in terms of public transportation, lightweight, they're not going well as or as planned, but th- that line, the light rail line, which is a project, is a demonstration project of uh, uh, of agreement between China and Vietnam in terms of bi uh, uh, sort of uh, bi uh, uh, started in mean, two thousand seventeen, but and become full operational 2000, um, 2021, November two thousand ten mm-hmm. and make a huge difference. Everybody, they have a landmark project. And that shows that, and it is because of Chinese technology and Chinese standard and Chinese, of course, uh, uh, I mean, the design. This is very much uh, showed the, 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 the infrastructure, the connectivity issue that China can help uh, uh, Vietnam to meet the demand, to, 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 demo, to, to work out, to help them to address the, the, the needs for that. This is very much important. And this is, I think, now uh, more and more, I said, acknowledged and recognized by the average people. Where I, I think China and uh, Vietnam will continue to do that mm. mega projects, projects mm. for demonstration, projects that would help Vietnam to address the need, the shortfall for uh, future uh, development, mm. in term, um, social and economic development.
1: Okay, so as a matter of fact, Xi Jinping's article uh, has actually touched upon the common values of Asia, suggesting that building a community with a shared future for mankind ought to start from Asia, ought to start from China's neighboring countries. So how do you think, uh, with that in mind, how do you think China and Vietnam, these two countries, can somehow work together to jointly promote, say, peace, cooperation, inclusiveness, and integration in Asia? 90 seconds.
0: Oh, well, this is, again, uh, an, an, an area uh, where I think China and, and Vietnam can make a difference in terms of values, common values. Put forward, advocated by the vision of community shared future. Vietnam is a, a big country in the in Asia. It is also important country of ASEAN. China and Vietnam working together, advocating the shared values of Asia. Certainly will will make a big difference in terms of the competition or pressure from the West, where they are advocating uh, democracy democratization for the purpose and the human rights, which is of course. I think uh, an issue and values China and Vietnam would like to pursue in its own way.
1: Mm. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us. That was Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding in Beijing. A draft agreement from the UN COP28 climate summit has dropped a call for the phase-out of fossil fuels. The document is setting out a range of actions aimed at cutting down greenhouse gas emissions to net-zero by 2050. However, some countries are hoping that the final text of this particular document will somehow go further by striking a landmark agreement to phase out fossil fuels instead of only presenting the choices regarding how to cut their consumption and production. The document will have to be agreed on by almost 200 countries at the summit in the city of Dubai. So joining us now on the line is Wu Changhua, acting chair with the governing council of Asia Pacific Water Forum. Thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: So why do you think this draft agreement has dropped, has dropped this kind of uh, references to the phase-out of fossil fuels? I mean, those who criticize this um, wording in this document say its language on fossil fuels is the result of an apparent concession to oil-producing interests. What is your take on this?
4: Well, the reason uh, of the controversy that's standing out now is because there is no uh, consensus and uh, different countries still stand uh, having different uh, uh, you know, different positions, different demands, and uh, particularly in terms of the wording the future of the fossil fuels there as well. Uh, so it's no surprise that at the last minute of the COP at this moment, and uh, different countries' negotiators are still fighting really, really hard actually to make sure you know, the language, their agenda, uh, their expectations are included in the final package with draft all the tests of the COP28. So that's why the negotiation is still going on. And the latest uh, information from the negotiated side is that it's going to be extended way beyond the original plan. So it's mm. going to be another extended negotiation. Now, coming down to the, uh, you know, uh, the sort of particular opinion about the influence uh, uh, of the oil and gas industry, I know actually even before uh, COP28 was convened and started, it has been overshadowed by this particular, uh, you know, sort of opinion out there because the presidency of UAE, uh is the CEO of AnnoOC, which is a state oil company, uh, but he's also the CEO of uh, Masdar, which is the UAE's renewable energy company there as well. Another uh, factor to look into, I think there are data numbers out there saying how many lobbies that the PR firms representing you know the oil and the gas industries are present actually uh, at the cop there as well. My personal opinion is that I cannot really deny all those sort of factors there, but really more objectively to look at the whole situation there. I think the disagreement is that, and uh, we cannot agree upon how, the, the schedule uh, of phase out uh, fossil fuels there. And that's a part of the negotiation happening now. There are countries are totally against, uh, you know, uh, so including language like phase out the fossil fuels in And then on the other side, actually. And you know, people totally support that, right? Many countries actually are standing in between because we all know transition cannot really happen overnight. It takes time. That's why we mm-hmm. call it a transition. But how quickly we will be able to get there, to face out for you, to face down and face out fossil fuels? to... Between now and in 2050, in order to get to the net zero carbon emission by mid of century remains to be seen. That's why, you know, negotiations are still fighting each other now.
1: Mm. So, of course, I mean, when we talk about energy uh, transition, that's one aspect, but on the other hand, there is also the issue or the challenge surrounding, say, energy poverty. Uh, the data I have read about is that tells me that in today's world, there are still some, somewhere around 770 million people without access to electricity, as well as somewhere around 2.5 billion people in today's world without access to clean cooking fuel. So, of course, I mean, the concerns of those countries that oppose this document's wording on fossil fuels should be taken into consideration, that's for sure. But on the other hand, um, Dr. Wu Changhua, do you think we also need to um acknowledge this very uncomfortable truth that for those people living with absolute energy poverty, um, access to fossil fuels are really the most affordable solution to their poverty in terms of energy?
4: Yeah, the short answer is absolutely yes. And uh, if you look at the, even the neg- neg- two-week negotiations uh, in Dubai, fairness, uh, equitable, and, uh, as well as the Justice Foundation, uh, pretty much a big part you know, embedded everywhere, actually, in the negotiation process and in many, many side, side events different workshops, seminars, the conferences there as well. Uh, I think this requires the redesigning, the wisdom, and, uh, and also uh, the sort of consideration in the redesigning of our energy future system, the process. We had to make sure, on one hand, that we need to deploy renewable energy as much as possible, as quickly as possible. But in that process, make sure we really design this sort of, we call it, generally sustainable development goals uh, you know, unit as well. I call like a synergy or co-benefits of clean energy transition. We call like a plus SDGs there as well. So there are solutions uh, out there. There's no doubt about it. It's been proven in many parts of the of China as well as many other countries there as well. For the solar energy can easily be integrated actually with food and agriculture, fishery, any industries actually you could imagine at this moment there. So yes, it's a challenge today with all those numbers. Really, we need to face the reality, but more importantly, we need to focus on the solution part. It's not the technology anymore. It is about to make sure we, when designing, you know, uh, any programs or projects, we have to make sure really capturing and maximizing actually the benefits, the co-benefits, as well as the synergy with the poverty alleviation, with access to clean energy. Uh, with the gender, I could say, you know, all
1: the other issues there as mm. well. It, it's totally doable. Okay. So since the days leading up to the opening of this COP28, we have kept hearing about voices that are pointing fingers at the so-called uh, controversy regarding having the UAE, which is an oil-producing country, to host this particular event. What is your take in this regard, Dr. Wu? I mean, for for, for example... When Scotland was hosting, I mean the city of uh, Glasgow in Scotland was hosting the COP26 back in 2021, there was apparently no such criticism against Scotland, but actually Scotland represents the biggest oil producer and second biggest gas producer in Europe.
4: Well, that's, that's the thing, right? And uh, where do you want to spend your time and energy on? And mm. I wouldn't really pay too much attention to things like that. Uh, rather, I would really look at, uh, focus on the performance of UAE, the presidency of COP28. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the deliverables so far, I've been very impressed because the first day of COP28, they delivered the first major breakthrough, which is to operationalize the loss and the damage fund, which is a really big piece of the puzzle and the global negotiation process there. And then if you look at, the, you know, even during the first five days uh, of the negotiations, they delivered, they managed to mobilize about $83 billion of funds to different vehicles there. And, uh, you know, and they uh, about more than a dozen uh, different initiatives, alliance have been pledged by different parties there, uh, really you know, focusing on uh, sort of action oriented and solution oriented through partnerships there as well. Uh, in that sort of a package, there, we started to see there are specific to sort of financing vehicles created to, to address the fossil fuel issues there. In the meantime, also address the food and uh, food agriculture security things, as well as actually nature positive, nature plus. Uh, Solutions. besides that, also look at, uh, you know, Mm. public health issues, the climate change issues, the resilience there as well. So I would probably rather than being tangled in this sort of, uh, you know, sort of argument, the problem wouldn't really make too much sense, uh, not really constructive to the process, rather as we focus on the performance of uh, the presidency. I think that's going to be more important, more powerful.
1: Hmm. So we still have about two minutes or so for today's uh, discussion with you. So another high-profile dispute during this year's uh, negotiation has been over the financing for green transition. We have uh, already heard from some chief African negotiator warning that this year's talk have so far failed to deliver a fair and equitable finance. But in your observation, do you think COP28 has witnessed any significant advance or progress in this regard?
4: The progress definitely has been made, but not adequate. I think, to be fair, I think African nations are both in their concerns there. And because on one side, they need to invest in clean energy transition, but more importantly, they need to adapt, right? And if you look at all the money put together, this $726 million mobilized for loss and damage funds and about $133 million For the adaptation fund. That's really a drop in the ocean. That's definitely not enough. And so yes, the level of ambition is not met at all. That's why at this last minute, you know, you still hear the strong voices against, you know, sort of the process and demanding for my financial commitment for developing countries, particularly for Africa's adaptation efforts.
1: Thank you very much. That was Dr. Wu Changhua acting chair was the governing council of Asia-Pacific Water Forum. More to come. NVIDIA is currently in negotiations with the U.S. government about artificial intelligence chip sales to China. And the Parliament of Poland has elected Donald Tusk as prime minister, setting a stage for fall with the European Union. You are listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The U.S. Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee is holding its final meeting this year on Tuesday and Wednesday. Expectations are quite high that the Fed will maintain interest rates at a 22-year high of 525 to 5.5%. Since March 2022, the American Central Bank has implemented a very aggressive strategy of raising interest rates. In total, rates have been raised 11 times as part of an effort to combat inflation in the United States. And investors are currently hoping that policymakers will start cutting interest rates for business relief. So for more on the interest rates issue as well as the overall U.S. economy, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Aina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute.
5: So, Aina, first of all, what do you expect from the Federal Reserve's meeting this week? A lot of expectations on they will maintain the interest rates unchanged. So what do you make of it and why?
2: Well they're sending out a kind of mixed singles uh, signals uh, It's a game of cat and mouse. actually, everyone expects them to basically remain the same. They're not going to put any cuts, but they're not going to put any rises uh, and you know you've seen this in recent speeches by uh, powell he in a, he made a speech in Atlanta where he hedged and basically said he could go other either way and People are looking at the November Fed minutes where they indicated they can quote proceed carefully. Um, so this is a sign that things are neutral, and that perhaps sometime in the future uh, there's going to be a rate uh, cut, and the question is how quickly and um, when.
5: Mm. And Goldman Sachs projects uh, two federal Reserve interest rate costs for next year. so what's their arguments or foundations for that?
2: Well, they, they, they're looking at inflation and the Fed has indicated that uh, the, the rates will follow inflation. So if they start getting closer and closer to 2% uh, and they start to feel some pressure from the economy, because remember, while this is all happening, um, it's, it may sound good from macro level, but at the micro level, the number of bankruptcies, uh, people defaulting on car loans, uh, home loans, etc., is at its highest point ever. Mm. And this is a, a huge factor where they don't seem to talk about it in all of the reports. Um, it's out there, it's reported, but it's not um, talked about in conjunction with the Fed's rates. But at some point, uh, I believe um, Goldman believes that you know, these things have to be uh, paid attention to and the economy has to be restarted.
5: Mm-hmm. And since March the 2022, the U.S. Central Bank has implemented an aggressive strategy of uh, raising the interest rates. And rates have been raised 11 times so far. So what's the impact on the U.S. economy? And have the interest rate hikes done their jobs?
2: Well, it depends on who you t- uh, talk to. I mean, obviously, if you're about to lose your car, your home, and you're going to go bankrupt and you've lost uh, a good-paying job, uh, despite this, um, all these signs that, oh, yes, there are lots of jobs out there, um, many people do not want to flip burgers or they'd have to have three jobs in order to equal the one that they lost. So things are, are not as rosy as they seem. Um, as, as things are going forward, the, the real question is, how can the uh, economy um, deal with this kind of two realities? One, where it says everything is wonderful, and this is the Biden administration um, uh, message. It says everything. Don't worry. You know, vote for me next year. Uh, versus the personal reality of much of uh, the United States. Remember, sixty-six percent of the people. I mean, sixty-one percent of the people live paycheck to paycheck, and those paychecks have been going down. Remember, inflation is still higher. Um, than any kind of wage increases, although recent wage increases indicate that there is a level of additional inflation being put in, because those wage increases are not linked to productivity. They're just increase in costs, and those have to be passed on to somewhere.
5: Mm -hmm. And for the U.S. domestic economy, what are the structural problems of it now, and what challenges does it face, and what do you make of the Biden economics?
2: Well, Biden economics, it, it's its not a really a strategy. He, he just believes that uh, the Fed is taking care of things and that um, his uh, two landmark bills that added tremendous amounts of money to the, the overall debt of the United States, another 3 or $4 trillion, um, that somehow this stimulus is going to help America uh, you know, basically bounce back from wherever it was. But the underlying fund- fundamentals is that the U.S. is not – although they, they've subsidized some reshoring and things like this, it, the economy itself is not competitive worldwide. So that means that they are stuck with this idea of either erecting more trade uh, tariffs to protect – uh, their internal market, but that increases inflation, and those products are by definition not competitive worldwide. so the use is struggling to how it can compete uh, a lot of its efforts have been being, uh, based on trying to um, you know curtail China, but th- that doesn 't solve the underlying issue that it 's a global Market out there, and they're being outperformed not just by China but by ASEAN uh, and many other places, especially in areas where labor is a major factor.
5: Mm -hmm. And the U.S. maybe, you know, have avoided the worst of its debt ceiling, but it still has the debt issue or problems. And Ray Dalio said there could be a shortage of U.S. debt buyers since institutional investors who bought the treasuries a few years ago. Got burned by the Federal Reserve's rapid interest rate hikes. So, what's your take? And can U.S. really solve its debt problem?
2: Well, um, I mean, I I understand exactly what Ray Dalio is saying. You know, he said you know U.S. Treasuries used to be considered the gold standard. It was, in fact, it was like holding gold because it was so steady, so safe. It was, you know, the U.S. dollar was the um, the trade uh, instrument of choice. Why? Because you could put your money into U.S. treasuries, and there would not be a great uh, gain or great loss. Uh, that all changed with the Fed uh, hiking these rates very, very quickly and undermined co- uh, confidence. Now, when you say, has uh, this affected uh, appetite for bonds? It already has. Uh, What you saw a few weeks ago was there was a bond offering. It was only $130 billion, uh, $150 billion, uh, but they were not able to sell it. And the uh, entity that was responsible for shepherding this thing, offering it to market, had to take 25% of the uh, bonds that were on offer internally because they could not sell them even though they hide rates dramatically uh, in order to try to get them there. So, you know, there are trillions of dollars, uh, tens of trillions of dollars that are coming online and, you know, the The Fed is justifiably worried whether or not people will have an appetite for them. Uh, They might at these prices, but the volatility and this idea that the U.S. Treasury is this safe harbor has now forever been broken. Uh, It's clearly something that can be weaponized for um, American internal concerns uh, without regard to the uh, global uh, situation.
5: And how does the U.S. Federal Reserve's endless monetary policy circle expanding and shrinking, namely controlling the supply of dollar, benefit itself and at the expense of the world
2: economy? Well, that's what I'm saying. The world economy has lost faith in the United States, Uh, the Treasury. Um, just simply because, it, you know, it's not safe anymore for all the reasons I was just talking about. Uh, they look at it as just another investment. Um, I'll do it there. I'll do it somewhere else. But in terms of uh, money, this is adding a tremendous amount of pressure. You're seeing countries – Uh, diverging from the dollar and doing direct currency swaps with their trade partners. This is particularly true of China, but it is also true, uh, you know, India and uh, Russia have settled on the rubles. Um, And then you have... um, uh, other countries that have said, look, we're going to just trade directly in, in the, in the uh, local currencies because there's less risk involved. And, you know, this is, these are business decisions. This isn't emotional. Uh, this simply goes to how do I uh, make and keep my, uh, my money, uh, especially if the U.S. dollar is no longer reliable
5: mm mm-hmm. uh, Major central banks in the Western countries will also meet this week to outlook their monetary policy for the next year. So what do you expect from the ECB and the Bank of England?
2: Well, they're, they'll be watching very nervously. They're all coming out on Thursday. It's a kind of a Super Thursday event. In between, uh, the U.S. will be uh, reporting on uh, PPI and CPI. Um, but, you know, if Let's assume that the Fed follows through and that it's very stable. You can expect the ECB, Bank of England, and Swiss Bank to basically hold the line. Uh, Norway has already signaled that it intends to raise rates. It wants to cool its economy a little bit, uh, but that's a national policy decision, decision, actually the, you know, with Germany and France dipping into recession, uh, there is a desire on the er- European side to start reinflating the economies to try to claw back and help develop uh, what demand is left uh, after a deindustrialization. Um, so they will be, you know, waiting very anxiously to make sure because if they, they, they this other thing is they can't afford to ignore a bank, a U.S. bank rise because that would affect the value of their currency and they feel they have to defend those. So they're in a very difficult position. They want to do change something, but they can't because the US dollar is, is such an important factor in their decision.
1: Aina Tangan, senior fellow with the Tai He Institute, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today, I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the Biden administration is currently in discussion with NVIDIA about permissible sales of artificial intelligence chips to China. However, she emphasized that this California-based chipmaker won't be allowed to sell its most advanced products to Chinese companies. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said on Tuesday that the U.S. actions undermine the legitimate interests of Chinese companies and will not be conducive to the stability of global supply chain. NVIDIA, for your information, is currently in the process of developing China-specific chips after the U.S. government tightened control to block the export of semiconductors that the company had earlier designed for the Chinese market. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkung Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, frankly speaking, um, how would you... How would you make of the current mindset on the part of the US government when we talk about uh sales of artificial intelligence chips to China?
3: The US government, uh, particularly under the Biden administration, there's a single word to describe their behavior, frustration. Why it is frustration is because uh number one, it's going to contain China's tenant technological progress, especially in the higher-end semiconductor industry, which is now uh, very important for many emerging and new uh, industries in the world. But on the other hand, Chinese uh, market is huge, and also China has the complete industrial chain, which uh, the U.S. cannot be totally decoupling from. And uh, uh, particularly the, the chip makers, they are uh, private enterprises. They they want to sell their product to make money and profit. And by cutting off from the Chinese market, there are two uh, very detrimental consequences for the U.S. companies themselves. The first consequences is that uh, they have to reduce their sale and also reduce their profit. And secondly, it actually... Uh, you know, there's a feedback into the Chinese, uh, technological, uh, you know, program. Because after the technological blockage, the Chinese industry and, uh, research and development, uh, you know, unit, they try to invest much more on making their own chips. Uh, a typical case is the Huawei. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, this is why there is a legislation, uh, in the, on the U.S. side. Uh, just to make sure they want to still dominate the market, but also uh, make sure that in the end they will not be totally decoupled from the Chinese uh, market. Then this is the the war I say fluctuating. Mm, now okay. th- this kind of dictation uh, yeah. is actually some sort of small compromise. But if uh, you, you can see the underlying, uh, you know mindset is still want to contain China.
1: Mm, okay, so. Uh, in other words, based on what you have elaborated, Professor Yao, uh, can we say? Do you think it is fair to say that companies like Nvidia, this kind of uh, chip maker is based in America but relies on a global sales network? They simply cannot afford to lose the Chinese market.
3: They can afford to, but they can—they uh, have to reduce a huge um, uh, proportion of, you know, sales and profit. Mm -hmm. And this is why uh, this company are facing a lot of difficulty because they already invested so much in making the technology uh, available into the commercial uh, sector in the world. And by cutting off from the the world's largest market, which is China, they are going to suffer quite significantly.
1: Okay. So talking about the bigger picture, Professor, uh, as we understand, in August, uh, earlier this year, The U.S. and China established a a joint commercial issues working group. And um, when it comes to uh, last month, for example, the Central Bank of China granted a license, for example, to to the establishment of a joint venture by uh, involving MasterCard and in the meantime chinese authorities have also approved u.s chip maker broadcom's 69 billion us dollar acquisition of cloud computing firm uh vmware actually broadcom is a rival a competitor of um you know this latest company we're talking about nvidia right they are rivals and now we have this latest news about nvidia so, do you think these developments we are talking about here are signs or signals that the establishment of this particular uh china u s working group on commercial issues is actually working?
3: It is working to uh, a, a limited extent but mm. to not a full extent. I think both sides are still playing the game on the chinese side of course uh china uh, have sent a very positive signal to make some compromise not only in the financial service industry, such as the credit card uh, you know, enterprise, but also allowing you know the U.S. company to even gain a more competitive advantage in, in the semiconductor uh, you know sector. But uh, the U.S. yeah by allowing Nvidia to uh, to to stay to sail to the chinese market which is uh, a small program, but it has a important clause of bonding the most advanced export uh you know of, of the most advanced chips of export to china this is still very undesirable so I would say uh both sides are, are playing their game with patience and trying to make a, you a know, possible compromise if they can benefit benefit themselves, and it's always I think the U.S. the problem is on the U.S. side mm-hmm. because the U.S. always trying to maximize the benefit by uh, you know minimize other people's gain. in this case, China. So, um, after all, in the short term, I maybe the U.S. can make some gain, but in the longer term, it's not necessarily the case. Okay. And this is why they have to see the short term and long term. Uh, possibility when they make the the decision. It is very unfortunate. I mean, nowadays, the commercial uh, uh, internationalization, international exchange and so on and so forth are so heavily uh, manipulated by political intervention, Mm. uh, particularly the U.S. administration, which have a very significant uh, problem of adding risk and cost. Uh, to the, uh, you know, the research the and development as well as the commercialization of high tech industries.
1: Mm. So, as long as we still have this kind of uh, uh, geopolitical or political intervention, especially from the US government, as long as this kind of uh, trend is still in place, uh, a fundamental shift in terms of the commercial ties between US and China is unlikely to materialize.
3: Where it would be materialized conditional on who is going to be uh, stronger in the future. Mm. At the moment, I think in the short, and medium term, the U.S. certainly have some uh, advantage. But in the longer term, it's not necessary okay. because the Chinese are making huge progress. So only China can become uh, stronger. You know, in the longer term, can the U.S. change the fundamental attitude? I mm. think this is the problem.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. That was Professor Yao Shujie joining us from Chongqing University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. In Poland, the country's parliament has elected former European Council President Donald Tusk as the country's new prime minister, paving the way for a new pro-European Union government. It comes nearly two months after a national election worn by a coalition of parties ranging from left-wing to moderate conservatives. On Monday, former Prime Minister Mateusz Muleweski from the Nationalist Law and Justice Party lost a vote of confidence. Donald Tusk is now expected to be sworn in later this week. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Wang Yiwei, Director of the European Studies Center, Renmin University of China. Thank you very much for joining us.
6: Thank you for the invitation.
1: So, I guess for Donald Tusk, one of his um, priorities right now is to try to get the European Commission. To unlock these billions of euros of EU pandemic recovery funds that have been frozen by the EU institution due to a previous clash between Brussels and Warsaw over the rule of law and judicial independence, so how much do these money, do these funds matter to Poland or to the new government of Poland?
6: Well, uh, firstly, this is huge money. It's dozens of the billions of the euros. Uh, secondly, uh, it's not just about the money itself. Uh, it's also about uh, reindustrialized. So more investment uh, will be uh, coming after this uh, uh, recovery fund. Poland, as a new member of the European Union, it joined the European Union 2004. Mm. Actually, uh, benefit a lot from the Europeans. Uh, we say Cohesion Fund. You know, all these uh, supports the new member. But 10 years later, there are less from the Brussels. So just the reason Poland take, took the pioneer role, joined the 16 plus one, the China and the Central and the European uh, Corporation, be the hub and uh, with a land bridge to connect China, invest in the Central Europe, European countries. So now, after the, of the, with the judicial reform uh, domestically of the Poland, which more uh, nationalist in the eyes of the Brussels, yeah. So Brussels punished Poland. So then they uh, this case to the European Court of Justice. The freezing of this uh, fund. So which uh, was the Poland's economy actually really need after the three years pandemic.
1: Hmm. So Professor Wan, do you think Donald Tusk's returning to power will somehow reposition Warsaw at the center of the EU decision making? Why or well, why not?
6: Well, uh, Tusk mm-hmm. is a uh, former uh, the president of the European Council. Uh, actually, it's the second after um, uh, Van Rompuy. Yeah. Uh, so it means uh, it's a more uh, we say uh, back to uh, integration with Brussels, not just go to nationalists. So that's I think it's like a pendant effect of the the uh, Poland's reform. After Brexit, started, more countries are encouraged by. A nationalist, however, uh, European Unions still are uh, very powerful, uh, in getting, uh, as uh, we mentioned about the recovery fund and all as a collective, you can have the future in the globalisation, otherwise uh, individual uh, countries mm. very difficult uh, to increase the comparative advantage. So Poland economy also suffered a lot by the Ukraine war and also because of the tensions with Brussels. So now they want to repair the relations with Brussels with uh, um, the reschedule of their uh, you know, political reform, I think.
1: Mm. So later this week, Donald Tusk is likely to represent the Polish government in attending an upcoming EU summit, which will, I guess, will, will be dominated by uh, negotiation or discussions surrounding the support for Ukraine militarily and financially. Now, I guess when we talk about the ties between Poland and Ukraine, I guess we're talking about a pretty tricky uh, relationship at the moment. On one hand, they are allies, that's for sure. But on the other hand, they are also you know, engulfed in this kind of a dispute over Poland's decision earlier this year to ban imports of grain from Ukraine. So do you think um, under the leadership of Tusk, Poland will move to mend the ties with Ukraine?
6: Well, uh, Poland's relations with Ukraine uh, is very um, complex. A huge part of uh, Ukraine, actually, the formerly territory of Poland. So that's the reason uh, Poland is very active in uh, two years uh, after the uh, the, uh, Ukraine war. And of course, uh, Poland uh, sells uh, so many Soviet Union weapons of aircraft to uh, to mm-hmm. Ukraine, to a uh, uh, to Ukraine. And Poland also very uh, against uh, uh, Russia. So support Ukraine actually is also uh, against Russia. And Poland is also very uh, strong connections with the United States, with the UK. The many Polish that live in the UK and also live in the United States. So Poland, actually, this is a typical historical cultural linkage with, uh, uh, with Ukraine, with uh, with the uh, uh, Anglo Saxons, so that's the reason why Poland is actually very crucial. It's so close to uh, Ukraine. After uh, Biden, you know, declared the we say re-election uh, campaign, and then the US actually uh, reached the so-called the debt the uh, the uh, the the time. Is so they need the European countries to pay more to assistance of uh, Ukraine. So now this uh, European summit actually, well, well, well. Um, Mm. Actually, there were more new forms to uh, support the Ukraine. And then Poland definitely Well, actually be active to volunteer mm. to do more.
1: Mm. So despite the election of Tusk, it appears that this kind of uh, political division or you know polarization within Poland still remains. For example, the Law and the Justice Party uh, continues to be very influential in this country. So how do you think such a scenario is going to have an impact on the actual policy delivery or policy implementation by a government led by Donald Tusk?
6: Well, Donald Tusk definitely will be a weak uh, prime minister, actually, a government, because of uh, uh, now its collusion of uh, parties, of the uh, actually This is a very popular uh, phenomenon in the European politics. So even uh, when uh, Tusk was elected, he was attacked by, for instance, the current uh, Deputy Prime Minister said, you are the spy of Germany. So openly condemn his Mm. positions, uh, betray the country. So that means um, he has a very weak political foundation uh, to run uh, Poland's uh, policy.
1: Thank you very much and for your analysis. That was Professor Wang Yiwei, Director of the European Studies Center with Renmin University of China. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. If you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Dinghan in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.